0: As was mentioned already, and on a number of occasions, not only in the announcements, but in the prayer, and even some of these songs that we have just sung together have been very encouraging and mindful of us to challenge us to appreciate the blessing that is ours this morning. As Brother Gary mentioned, it is a delight and a joy to come together as we are. And I hope and trust that as we give thought to the Word of God over the next few moments, we shall in fact be encouraged in even grander ways to appreciate the honor that is ours. I do think it wise on this occasion to speak at least for a moment on behalf of the elders and for, for certainly my family and myself. As you know, last Wednesday evening was a bit of an unusual evening in the sense that we didn't assemble here. We assembled just up the way, and so certainly for some, that may have been a bit of an inconvenience. It certainly was a bit unorthodox. But in fact, it's a remar- remarkable thing to notice that this congregation was there in such plentiful numbers. Your support for the meeting at McClellan Avenue was remarkable. In fact, I think virtually our entire congregation literally assembled at McClellan Avenue. I think the brethren there were encouraged. I think that they not only were impressed with the devotion of this congregation to assembling on Wednesday, which is something that so many congregations seem to suffer beneath, but it certainly is commendable to this congregation and the elders, and I wish to share that with you and certainly express our, our consideration and appreciation as well. After death, what then? I know that I stand before an audience this morning, and as we each are aware of some of the considerations about the nature of death, it truly reminds us that there are some fantastic questions that often come before the mind of man. Questions that truly are profound. Questions that truly call upon us to go far beyond what science can ever answer for us. In fact, I've listed for you some considerations as deep as what is life itself. When you and I recognize that life is certainly very special, but how do you define it? I think all of us perhaps could go to Webster's Dictionary or some other collegiate dictionary and it might say the state of not being dead. Now, I'll be the first to say that doesn't define much. I would say to you that we need to do far better than that. And in fact, when you consider the nature of life, the understanding of death, what happens when a person dies? Do we know? Is it possible to say anything with confidence and with assurance and with the understanding that truly can be relied upon as the way that things really are? The answer to all those questions takes us far beyond what science will be able to help us with. Medical science knows a great deal Much has been learned over the intervening centuries about the nature of health, the character that goes with it, the nature of what happens at doctor's offices and hospitals. But when it comes to what happens beyond death and the features by which it really is to be described, there's only one source to which we can go, and it's this book. And so it is, over the next few moments this morning, I would invite you to give some thought with me to what does the Bible say in answer to questions like this one. After death, what then? As you give thought to it, I suppose many of us truly would be such that our minds would race to considerations we've known. Attending funerals of loved ones, considerations involved what we saw happen, maybe to our great-grandparents or grandparents or others. Our issue, though, is to ask, what does God's Word say about this? I would like for us to begin by revisiting a most familiar passage in Luke the 16th chapter. As you turn there with me, no doubt the very mention of the chapter already brings before us the issue of the two persons before us. I would invite you to read with me beginning in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is tormented. I'm sorry, he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead... They will repent. And He said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Two individuals appear before us in the lip, from the lips of our Savior. The one of them, a rich man. And as you noticed with me, the station in his life was very positive from all the materialistic standpoints. He ate well, he was clothed well, It would appear that his health was good. It would seem that in fact he was in a nice place in terms of his place of abode. From all standpoints, doesn't it appear that things were exceedingly pleasant and comfortable for him in this life? But there was another gentleman also mentioned. His name was Lazarus. That word Lazarus simply means, as you can well tell, the one whom God helps. That's simply what that word means we find his station was exceedingly different. His health was not good. Notice he was covered in sores and he had no money to buy ointment. He had no means whereby to purchase assistance or help. It says the dogs was the only soothing character that he enjoyed. Not only that, the food he enjoyed was very little if any. He was in fact desirous of the crumbs which fell from the table of that rich man. You'll notice that he was laid at the gate of that rich man, as so often was the case in that day and time. We remember that there weren't the common welfare system that we enjoy today. This man had no means whereby he could work, it would seem, and thus his only income was to, in fact, be granted gifts or alms from those that were wealthier than he. This man was laid at the gate of the rich man. Notice again his station so very different. Poor health, likely poor clothes, the other poornesses associated with his way of life. So much different between he and the rich man. There was, however, something to be noted. There was one tremendous commonality, death. The rich man died. The text so clearly points that fact out to us, but not only he, but Lazarus also died. The two were common in that arena at least. We notice that in the sense that they died. Doesn't that in fact point us to a rather dramatic lesson for every person within the sound of my voice? Hebrews nine twenty-seven still reads, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And so it is that the fate which each of them in fact endured is the same degree to which you and I are marching. Every one of us, if the Lord delays His coming, are headed to that same reality, death. As you can see, though, in the character of that death, their stations in life were so different here, but what about after death? This would be an important time to notice that unless the God of heaven had lifted the veil and allowed us to peer through, we would have no idea what it's like after death. Again, medical science can't tell us. Things that claim to be able to do that, like witches and spirits and those that read palms and so forth, they're all phonies. They can't tell us what it's like either. Governmental leaders don't know unless they read the sacred scriptures. This is the only source of reliable information. You'll notice, though, that beginning in verse number 22, it tells us about what what it was like after each of these had died. Isn't it also fair to say that their station after death was even more different than the station before death? But now it's in the other order. In this life, Lazarus had suffered so much. He had been without and been bereft of so many of the comforts and niceties of life. All of its luxuries, it seems, had passed him by. But on the other hand, the rich man enjoyed everything that the materialistic matters of this life had to offer. After death, it was Lazarus that enjoyed all the comforts of the afterlife. It was Lazarus, on the other hand, as he had enjoyed all those comforts in that afterlife, perhaps appreciated it more richly, because he had been bereft of them in the flesh. But on the other hand, the rich man, though in so much comfort in this life, after death, how miserable he was. He was in torment. That word appears several times in this text. He even highlighted that fact from his own mouth. When he espied from a distance, Father Abraham, and in fact yearned for Lazarus to come and to cool his tongue in the flame of torment. Their stations after death were virtually infinitely different. I would ask you to notice that after death, there is a continued existence, and that will be much of what you and I shall strive to appreciate in the lesson this morning. Perhaps some final comments. You'll notice that I've tried to highlight a few of the features of that rich man after death. Mention is made of torment. Mention is made of a flame. Mention is made of a great gulf that in fact hinders his departure from this awful place. And furthermore, there's mention on his behalf, perhaps for the first time ever, of his desire to be evangelistic. I have five brothers and I do not want them to come here. Please send someone to them that they might come to hear the message that will keep them out of this torment. Wasn't it true though that he was told they've got Moses and the prophets. God has revealed to all your brothers, you rich man, the fact that is in fact available to one and all and that is the message that needs to be heard in, in that particular era and day. And if they won't hear that, they won't even hear if one rise from the dead. That does highlight how powerful the Word of God is, doesn't it? More powerful than if one were to rise from the dead. More powerful than any kind of miracle along that line. This is what will keep one out of torment. I suppose as we reflect upon that, perhaps let's put together a few more lessons and do so under some various headings. As we refer back to this particular text time and again, we might well begin here. Human beings themselves, you and me, there are those in classes at Tennessee Tech that in fact devote an entire semester to discussing the character of human beings. They list the various philosophies that go along with the teachings throughout the centuries. They demand the students to memorize that and be able to write essays about it. And as you reflect perhaps in your own education on what you've learned at high school or beyond about the nature of the human being, I would ask that we use Luke 16 to help us for the next few moments. We notice that there was a part of both the rich man and the Lazarus that of course recognized their fleshly existence, their existence in the flesh on earth. But notice they both died, but they continued to exist. Let's use the rest of the Word of God to assist us in thinking more carefully and also more thoroughly about that teaching. Maybe these headings would be well to begin. The inspired apostle, in fact, joined this discussion in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, didn't he? When Paul, as he wrote to the Thessalonians, identified that there are three constituent portions to a human being. There is that part he recognizes the body. There is that part he called the spirit and that part that he called the soul. And as he described all three of them, Paul again distinguished them with care. It is with that in mind that you and I might do the same. Let's discuss the body for just a moment. The body is frequently referenced in the Word of God, and it truly is a gift from the God of heaven. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, Genesis 2 verse 7. Early on, then, in God's creative activity, we find, of course, that reference on day number six, in which the Lord God formed man of what? The dust of the ground. We notice one chapter later in Genesis three nineteen, after the fall, after the sin, with Adam and Eve and the serpent, of course, involved, we notice verse 19, God speaking to Adam said, "...by the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread." until thou return into the dust. For out of the dust wast thou taken, and in the dust shalt thou return. This body, then, that you and I are blessed to possess, even though we often pay such great attention to it, notice it's made of the same chemical elements as the dust of the earth. The same constituencies, chemically, that are used to form dirt are the same ones that make your body and mine. Things like silicon, carbon, Oxygen and so on down the list. In fact, those who study, such as geologists, the nature of the crust of earth, were told that basically eight elements comprise all of it, and those same eight elements are found in your body and mind. If you in fact were to ask what's the expense of that, how much would those chemical elements cost? The entirety of your body or mind could easily be purchased chemically for less than a dollar fifty. Chemicals don't cost much. Isn't it interesting then that we have learned a bit about this body, but you'll notice that something was said, namely, it isn't permanent, in the sense that it's going to return to the dust. The deterioration, the decay shall ultimately come its way, and to that dust it shall return. As you reflect upon that, you'll notice that here both the rich man and Lazarus died. You'll notice as you discuss the nature of that body, A few other verses no doubt quickly come to mind. Truly, it's capable of many things. Psalm 139 verse 14 still reads, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. You and I can look about us and see what the body of man has been able to accomplish. Sending people to the moon building bridges and skyscrapers, various other structures that are impressive to say the least. But that body, again, is not permanent. You'll notice that one of the verses I ask you to notice in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, as well as Job 19, both of which highlight features that might be recalled in this way. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 reminds us of Paul's marvelous character as he spoke That if our earthly house were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. You see, you and I are not going to dwell permanently in this bodily flesh as it now exists. It seems that after discussing the nature of that body, it's time to ask about the others. You'll also notice that there is the Spirit. Paul made mention of that Spirit. We notice, for instance, in Zechariah 12, verse number 1, We also are told that it's God who is the originator of that spirit. In the same way that it is God that formed the body out of the dust, and it's God who in fact put in place the features whereby that body comes about, it's also God that gives that spirit. Is it not the God of heaven that formeth the spirit of man within Him? Zechariah 12 verse 1. Are we not told in Hebrews 12 verse 9 that it is He that's the Father of our spirits? It is true, then, that as you and I think about a human being, you and I so often think only about the body because we see it with our eye, we put clothes on it, we cut the hair of it, we put glasses on it, and we do all these things for the body which we see. But there is that spirit that, of course, isn't able to be seen with this physical eye. But it's that spirit that is every bit as real. It is provided by God, and you'll notice it's that spirit that animates the body. It's that spirit that makes the body alive. It's that spirit that allows it to enjoy the movement and the character and the features that it has. You'll notice that we know all of that because of the following reason. In John 4, 24, it says, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And therefore, in the same way that God is a spirit, you and I also have a spirit essence. That spirit that is you and me is that fundamental given by God. It bears the marks and attributes of some of the great features. We are told in Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, So when God fashioned Adam, and later when He made Eve, He made them in His own image. You and I, in the sense that we're spirit beings, we have that essence. You'll notice that spirit allows us to say this. There is not the slightest hint anywhere in Scripture that a spirit can ever die. Ecclesiastes simply tells us it returns to God that gave it. And therefore, at the time that you and I recognize as death, it's not that that person ceases to be, and it's not that they're annihilated, and it's not that they no longer exist. They are as alive as they ever were. It's just that they're not in the same form, in the same location, if you will. What about that third element, the soul? We've learned a bit about the spirit and the body. That soul is a term that relates fundamentally, as the term suggests, to breathing. And thus, as long as there's spirit in that body, that body is alive and it manifests itself with the appearance of soul, this individual is breathing, this person is alive. That nature of soul takes us to a number of places that that word occurs. It seems to be usable with a bit of a latitude. Sometimes it refers to the person himself or herself, such as Acts 2.41. Sometimes it refers to the element of breathing, Genesis 1.21. Sometimes it refers to the intelligence, Luke 2.35. We are aware that as we give thought to the spirit and the soul and the body, we have learned something exceedingly fundamental, and I've placed it in lowercase letters at the bottom. As we've looked at these things again, there's not the slightest indication that a human being ever ceases to be. In other words, death is just a transition. Let's then talk about death for just a moment. What happens at the time of death? We recognize in this flesh that there is such opportunity, there's such privilege, there's such blessing. But when you and I visit a funeral home, Or when we are at the hospital and a beloved loved one passes from us, what is it that has happened? At death, the spirit merely departs the body. That's all that death is. James 2.26 simply puts it in language like this. In that discussion that relates to faith, faith without works being dead, we're told that when the spirit departs the body, that in fact constitutes the time of death. Thus, that special spirit that we learned earlier that's given by God and that never dies, never ceases to be, when it departs the body, the body is left in a state we call dead. That body is left in a lifeless state because that which animated it, the spirit, that which made it alive is no longer there. That then sheds a great deal of light upon what you and I perceive to be the very matter of death, doesn't it? Look at some of these verses with me. The Bible is filled with references that help us appreciate that fact. In Genesis 35 verses 18 and 29, we read that Isaac was such that he died, but it also says this, he was gathered to his people. Now how could it be that one who dies at the same time is gathered to his people? That particular phrase takes on an added meaning when we remember the same thing was said of Abraham in Genesis 25.8. Abraham died being old and full of years and he was gathered to his people. It would seem from what you and I perceive about death that in death you're separated from your people. How is it you're gathered to them? Well, because of what we've learned this morning, that now makes sense, doesn't it? All of Abraham's former people his parents and so on they had long since died in death he was going to be gathered to where they were he was going to now certainly not cease to be but in fact dwell where they now dwelt we know by the way that has no reference to where his body was actually buried because Abraham remember left Ur of the Chaldees he was in fact 500 miles away from where his parents were ever ever buried that tells us that that phrase reminds us that in this process of death, he was going to a new realm, a new place of existence, and there he was going to be involved in a reunion that was going to be special indeed. You'll notice also, in Genesis 49:33, a similar statement is made about Jacob. In numbers 24, or numbers 20 verse 24, something said about Aaron just like that. Perhaps in finality, along that line, we could conclude by using the words of David to assist us. David stated something rather interesting in 2 Samuel 12. It was on this occasion when his little baby boy died. Interestingly, in 2 Samuel 12, David said, "...he shall not return to me, I shall go to him." David knew that that little baby, though he was now dead, was still well alive somewhere. And he said, He will not return to me, but I will go to him. David knew well he was going to see the little fellow again. There was existence after death. All of those throughout the centuries who have felt that death is the end have been mistaken so sorely because they have rejected and ignored the truth of the Word of God. God, from the first book of the Bible onward, has said there is life after death. There is an existence beyond this one, and you better be preparing for it. Because just like we learned in light of the rich man, it may be an unpleasant time, and it may well be an occurrence and a circumstance and a situation fraught with torment difficulty. We've thus learned a second lesson. There is an existence beyond death. And all of those who fill our university classes and teach that there isn't are mistaken, plain and simple. They have rejected the truth of the Word of God and they need to stand beneath the tutelage of its marvelous lessons. There is life after death. Lesson number three What then does the Bible say about that place of dwelling? Where does the Spirit go when it leaves the body? Does the Word of God tell us? Does it provide any details? Does it give us any impressions? And certainly the answer is yes, because we just read it in Luke 16. There was that occurrence when Lazarus, though he was in uncomfortable circumstances here, when he left this place at death, he was in comfort. Lazarus found himself in a place called Abraham's bosom. It was a place that was blissful and joyful. It was a place of comfort. All of those difficulties that he had suffered in this life were not to be found there for him. Here he had been bereft of food and health and wellness, but there he was in comfort. As you reflect upon that, you'll notice with me that this particular place was called Abraham's bosom. That's an interesting turn of words, isn't it? It does remind us that there are some other passages in which this place is called by another name. The King James Version has done us no favor in using the same word to refer to this place as well as yet another place. And that is confusing to say the least. That word in most other translations is simply called Hades. It is that Old Testament word known as Sheol. You'll notice that it's used in a few of these references. For instance, when Jesus died on the cross, where did His Spirit go? That, of course, is a scene in a very well-to-be-asked question. When our Savior died on the cross at three in the afternoon on that particular day, and shortly thereafter, the Roman soldier, of course, made sure of that death, where did the Spirit of our Savior go? Back in Luke 23, verse 43, he, in speaking to one of those thieves, had said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. It would seem then clearly that there was a regime or region in this realm in which one might say it was paradise. Comfort, sweetness, bliss, joy. There certainly is no agony or torment wherever this was. You'll notice, though, that in Acts chapter 2, verse 31... As the inspired writer Peter made reference in that day of Pentecost to those events, he said that the Lord's Spirit was that day in Hades. Therefore, we can conclude that paradise was in Hades. Notice Jesus said he was going to paradise, but Peter said he'd gone to Hades. Therefore, the two must have been the same. Paradise was in Hades. We now notice that apparently that's where this place known as Abraham's bosom was. Lazarus, in fact, was there in great position of joy and comfort we might at this point pause to say isn't that where all of us want to go to don't we in fact look forward to enjoying a place of enjoyment comfort after this life where all the toil and all the difficulty and all the sins of the past are now gone think with me about some of these other verses as well there are many that labor under the illusion that at the time of death, one immediately goes to heaven if he's saved. There are no verses that substantiate that thought. In fact, there are several that militate against it. For example, didn't Jesus say in John 14, "'Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again.'" And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. If the order of language means anything, it means there is no inhabiting of the mansions until He comes back to receive us. The Lord hasn't come back yet. Heaven and all of its pristine beauty at this point still awaits. Every spirit of all saved who have died are now in paradise, not yet in heaven. It is in light of that we might make this statement. Three times in the New Testament, all from in fact the statements that you can see here from the writings of John himself: John three thirteen, John twenty verse seventeen, and First John four twelve. All of them say that no man has yet entered heaven. No man has yet entered heaven. You and I at this point are this many centuries this side of the completion of the New Testament and still not yet any has entered heaven. Where are they? They're still in Hades. The realm of disembodied spirits, this place where our eye at this point can't see it, but we know it exists. As you can see, one final thought. If we have shed some light upon then where Lazarus was, this place of Abraham's bosom, this place of paradise, where was the rich man? He clearly was in a very different place because whereas Lazarus was in comfort, Lazarus was in joy, we find the rich man in torment with a flame. And in a great gulf, he couldn't get out no matter how badly he wanted to. We notice something interesting about this place. This place of torment appears to be referenced a place a bit later. In 2 Peter 2 verse 4, it says that there are some evil spirits that are themselves bound in change, awaiting the day of judgment, awaiting that final tally, that place in which their reserve may well be then this same place known as Tartarus, clearly a place of torment, a place of unhappiness, a place of deep regret. One other thing that you might notice so clearly about this place Takes us, in fact, to the next slide. This torment we've described so far one of the things that apparently makes this place of torment so awful, you'll notice the rich man had a memory. He knew there were brothers still on earth, and he knew that the state they were in, they were lost, and he knew that they needed not to come there. I wonder how often he might have remembered, if only I'd listened to Lazarus. If only I'd learned more about Moses and the prophets. If only I'd obeyed the Lord. I'd submit one of the things that's going to make Tartarus, as awful as it's going to be, as many of those that are there are going to say, I sat there and had chances to obey the gospel, and I didn't. I'm here because of my own stubbornness, my own foolishness and I'll never get out of this place. Think with me about that a moment. The rich man had a memory. He knew he was there, and he knew he didn't have to be, but it was because of his foolishness, his stubbornness, his failure. If it's true that all of this happened as a reflection, when you and I give thought to the fact Jesus at this point hadn't died yet, What might we say now about those today who hear the gospel but don't obey it? There are going to come a time, they're going to end up in torment too, but they will have rejected something even greater that the rich man never had. He hadn't died by this point. These today are going to reject the precious blood of the Son of God. Let's use that to close our lesson this morning. You'll notice there was awareness and suffering but you'll notice that even Hades isn't permanent. Revelation 20 tells us that there's coming a time Hades will be emptied. Every spirit currently in it will come rushing out of it and inhabit a specially prepared body because, you see, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return from His position in glory. And when He does, closing the affairs of time, Hades will be emptied. There will be a general resurrection. Every person who has ever lived will be resurrected. Jesus, did He not say that Himself in John 11, 24, and 25? I am the resurrection and the life, He said. In John five twenty eight and 29, He said, Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Yes, indeed, every single one will rise be given a specially prepared body, and then everyone will stand before the judgment bar of the Son of God and give an answer for the deeds done in the body. Second Corinthians 5 verse 10 reads it like this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Those that have come out of Tartarus, although they've already been suffering terribleness and punishment and agony and anguish, they are now going to be faced with an eternity in an even worse place, a place called Gehenna Hell, where the fire is never quenched and the worm dies not, never to get out of that place. On the other hand, those that have rushed out of paradise, they'll now stand before the presence of again the Son of God and be judged worthy and faithful Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord, reads Matthew 25, 30, verses 21 and 23. After death, what then? We've been given a picture. The curtain has been pulled aside and we've been able to see what happens at death. The question now is yours and mine. And these questions point us clearly to this conclusion. It is vitally important to miss Tartarus and to make it to paradise. What state are you in right now? If you died five minutes from now, which will it be? Paradise or Tartarus? You and I both need to answer that question, every one of us in the sound of my voice. Because at the time of death, there is no changing it. The state in which you and I are in at death will be the state for eternity. That's it. The rich man could not cross the gulf and Lazarus could not come there to comfort him. He was in that state never to be changed. If there's sin in your life this morning, if you need to come before the greatness of God and render initial obedience to Him, don't wait. It's too risky and it's too dangerous. We don't know what tomorrow brings, Proverbs 27.1. It may be you become a child of God but have wandered away from the fold. And so you again have put yourself in Tartarus in essence. Don't stay there. Come back to the God who loves you. Come back to the Savior who died for you. He shed His blood that you might be saved. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son cleanseth us from all sin. If you need to contact His blood today, won't you do that? And avoid Tartarus and put yourself in a position for paradise. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?